Dr. Google. It's not an MD. It's the name many give when searching for healthcare information online. Does it help? Does it hurt? On this episode of The Best of Health, we talk with two medical experts about the pros and cons about going online before going to your doctor. There are few things more important to your life than your health. You want the best of it. We want the best of it for you. That's why we're giving you the Best of Health podcast, where we cover a number of healthcare issues that affect you, your family, as well as the physicians, providers, and staff that help you on your healthcare journey, right here at Confluence Health. I'm Clint Strand, and today we're going to talk about a topic I find fascinating. Dr. Google. What do I mean by that? Well, when it comes to looking online to get clues as to what might be ailing you, we've heard all the jokes. Never trust Dr. Google. You're always three clicks away from cancer and all of that. However, we want to be informed heading into a doctor's office for an appointment. And we've read all the articles telling us we need to advocate for ourselves as patients and for our best care. So how do we educate ourselves on our health and our symptoms in a way that's productive and not a wild goose chase or a wild Google chase, as the case may be. I have a couple of experts here that can help us sort all that out. Dr. Tyler Sherman, he's a family practitioner in our uh, Confluence Health East Wenatchee Clinic. Dr. Sherman, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Glad I could be here. And nurse practitioner Katie Bates, you work in cardiology primarily. Thank you so much for taking time with us as well. Thanks for having me. Dr. Sherman, we live in a time where there has literally been never more information available at our fingertips. Notice I didn't say good information. I just said there's never been a time we've had more information at our fingertips. How exactly do we advocate for ourselves and and learn about what we need to know heading into your office without being misinformed? It feels like a huge task from someone who doesn't have a credentials behind their name like myself. Um, some things that you can know prior to being uh, you're with your general practitioner concerning whatever symptoms you have would be to, in a way, kind of put it down on a chronological order. Okay. And I think if you were to put in a chronological order and also kind of tease about every type of symptom that you think you may have related to that, um, can definitely help me in history taking. When you go to the internet, especially with all those specific symptoms, it's it's very difficult to be able to compile them all together to come out with a specific diagnosis. I find out the most anxiety and difficulty patients have is during the diagnostic process, trying to find a specific diagnosis that explains the symptoms that they're having. The unknown is scary. Exactly. So again, coming in with a chronology of, I felt this at this time for this long, that helps you out a ton. Yes. Okay. As far as trying to figure out what may be ailing you before they come see you, again, people want to be assured it's the unknown that's scary. Other than just simply writing down their own symptoms, how else can they be their own advocate? Would you even advocate trying to do research and turning to Dr. Google to try to figure some of this out? That's a tough question. The reason why I say that is because when you check Dr. Google, there can be some right answers that it gives back to you. But the issue is, you know, what's the most likelihood? Of course. And that's where I think a lot of us practitioners come in and we can help out with that. I've had patients come in and they've even read the pamphlet or read off Dr. Google that this medication causes this type of side effect. Actually, I have a database that allows for me to evaluate what percentage of that side effect occurs with that medication. So most patients would like to know if the possibility of them having whatever it is, a heart attack, or if they have any type of muscle aches, or if they have any type of headaches, you know, what's the percentage on that type of scale, whether it's 30% versus 1%. If you're a patient and you've been diagnosed, 
That's when the real questions start, right? Mm -hmm. What does this mean for me? What can I expect? What medications am I giving? We were talking about resources that patients can have online to help them figure this stuff out. And that resource comes from the patients themselves, right? Peer-to-peer things. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So a couple things that can be beneficial before, after you have a diagnosis is being able to hear other patient experiences. I recently found a study uh, discussing kind of peer-to-peer and the benefits of it, and actually that it actually reduces down uh, patients' anxieties, answers a lot of questions. Let's head back to the doctor's office with uh, Dr. Sherman here. It's story time here. I want to hear examples where, say, someone who came in informed in a positive way and possibly someone who came in thinking they were informed, and it was an interaction that left some opportunities for improvement, right? So let's start with the positive. Uh, What's the story of someone who came in, and it actually turned out to be a good thing, the research that they did? I just had a patient yesterday, actually, who went to the emergency department because of this right rib pain and this cough. They ended up doing a, a CAT scan on him, and they found a lung nodule. So we went home, and he researched about lung nodules, and he's thinking, I've got lung cancer. So it prompted him to come in, and to have that discussion with them. So that discussion reduced down his anxiety, but it also prompted him because he looked on Dr. Google that he may have lung cancer. Let's come in and let's talk about this. So we did. And it was a very good interaction. All right, let's go on the other side of the fence. What interaction did you walk away from going, oh, I wish that went better? A patient came in, new patient, hadn't met him before. His diabetes was extremely out of control, not on any medications. And we started to have this dialogue about dietary changes. Uh, And he'd lost a significant amount of weight, which I was, again, very supportive of. But then he started to go off on kind of some, I don't mean to sound negative, but in kind of natural approaches that... Often people confuse natural as being good for me, when in reality, sometimes uh, it's another type of medical therapy, and we don't have it as well regulated by the FDA. We don't know the results that can come from it. We started having this discussion, and he started to talk about, well, you know, I I follow the ketogenic diet, um, I do this, and, and this is what I've read, and he really became very combative. He said, that's wonderful that you have lost a significant amount of weight with your dietary changes. You're still, diabetes is uncontrolled. You know, we still need to approach it in a way that can get that controlled and and, uh, allow for you to continue on your road of of weight loss. Both things can be true. Yay, you lost weight. Boo, your diabetes are still uncontrolled. He he was happy to hear part A, did not want to hear part B. Let's take a look at from the general to the specific. Katie, you've been waiting. Thank you so much for your patience. Let's talk cardiology for a second and specific to what patients might read or hear when they walk in your office, just generally. I mean, I think walking into a specialist office may be a little different than walking into a general practitioner. You've been referred to this office. It's cardiology. It's your heart. Uh, you may automatically walk in there from a standpoint of a heightened sense of anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. My first encounter with a lot of patients is in the hospital Sure. when they've been hospitalized for a heart attack. And that's certainly a life-changing diagnosis for patients. And it comes with a lot of uncertainty about what is my life going to look like from here on out? Um, A lot of new medications that they've never been on. A lot of people who have not been on any medications and suddenly leave the hospital with a bag full. And so we definitely have to have these conversations about a change in their health status. And they have a lot of questions naturally about the medications. And so the conversation starts in the hospital. And then I usually see them in follow-up in clinic and they have 
many more questions, um, often from doing their own research and talking to friends and looking online. Is there a most common question that automatically makes you want to do an internal facepalm when you hear it? <laughs> you know, the most common thing that I spend my day talking about is uh, statins. Well, let's um, talk about that then. Okay. I mean, for some, for a lot of people, it's a lifesaver. For other people, they think it's a four-letter word. Absolutely. So, so what do you hear about statins? You know, a lot of patients, uh, like Dr. Sherman mentioned, are, are resistant about going on a statin had they not had an event in the past. So for what we call uh, primary prevention, um, the conversation changes, obviously, when they've had a heart attack and their, their risk profile is very different. And so we're often having the conversation of risk reduction by prescribing a statin because an event has already occurred. And um, we do have a lot of data supporting the effectiveness of statins and an overall very safe safety profile for them. And so we know that they work, we know that they reduce your risk, but there's a lot of information out there on the internet, especially with Dr. Google, about potential side effects from statins. And so patients are preconditioned to believe that there will be an issue with it before they start the medication. We were talking off the air before the tape started rolling, and you threw out a term that I love, but I want you to talk to me a little bit more about. You called it the nocebo effect, not placebo, nocebo effect. What's that? So um, this is something I learned about just in my own research uh, about this topic, kind of preparing for this podcast. But I think I, I knew about this happening. I just didn't realize there was a term for it. Sure. Because a lot of patients um, do their research online and have seen negative information about statins. And so they're hesitant to go on the medication. And when they're on the medication, I think they're more likely to come to us and say, you know, I've been experiencing this. I wonder if it's from my statin. So I found this concept of the nocebo effect mentioned online, where essentially, you know, if patients are exposed to information about a treatment or a drug or something that is negative, um, they're in many cases more likely to perceive that they're either having side effects from that medication or that a treatment won't work. And that can be definitely a disadvantage when we're prescribing medications. Well, I think there was a study out talking about different countries and about how the countries that have the most internet market share, that, that they that the countries that the internet has dealt the deepest into where you have the most access to Google and searches, the prevalence of people reporting side effects has risen proportionately along with that. And it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing, right? Mm -hmm. Are people more aware of the side effects? or are they looking for them more, right? Right. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, there was an article uh, in the International Journal of Cardi Cardiology about um, does Googling lead to statin intolerance? <laughs> and um, it's really an interesting concept, but they did look at, um, I think it was 13 different countries and kind of comparing their use of the internet and their use of Google and the reported um, percentages of statin intolerances in those countries. And it seemed to be very correlated with the higher internet usage. So it does beg the question, are people experiencing or perceiving that they're experiencing side effects because they've found this information online? And there's been some other reports in the, the media about issues with statins. Um, it was back in 2013 over in Europe, there was um, some articles published in the media about statins, some good, some bad. And it led to this kind of media frenzy about statins for a couple years. And they actually did some studies showing that a lot of people discontinued their statins because of this media outbreak. And there were probably some negative effects um, that happened with patient outcomes because of what came out of this. So once again, I don't think you or uh, Dr. Sherman are advocating
educating, keeping yourself in a bubble and not attempting to educate yourself, there's lots of information out there and there's good information amongst it. You just have to find it. So if it were your aunt or your niece or your sister or your brother coming to you and saying, Katie, where do I look? I have this issue. Where should I look? Where would you recommend people look for more information, for good information? Yeah, I try to steer people towards um, websites that come from major medical centers, um, national organizations, so things that end in .gov or .org or .edu. A lot of those are the more reputable sites because often they're not associated with a commercial endeavor. So you have to be wary of any site that is selling a product or is just a blog from an individual person because we don't always know about that person's personal medical history or their other medications, and it's very hard to generalize someone's specific experience to your medical condition. And so I try to steer people in the right direction for national organizations, American Diabetes Association, National Institute of Health. In cardiology, I really like the cardiosmart.org website. Okay. Um, It's got great information about just a wide variety of cardiology topics, medications. And as Dr. Sherman mentioned, um, it has some ability for people to link up with some um, peer-to-peer options as well as finding other people with your similar condition. Great options, Katie. Dr. Sherman, on your end, where would you recommend people go to try to search for information, good information? I would recommend the same places that Katie's already mentioned, the national uh, organizations over specific diseases, once you've had a specific diagnosis. The other are some other reputable hospitals, you know, Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic. They have very good websites, uh, access to information. And even you could look at your own local hospital. They may have some information there that you can look at as well to kind of correlate your symptoms as well as the diagnosis you have. Confluencehealth.org. It's a great place to go. I want to end things up with giving people some tools in their toolbox to work with when they're dialoguing with their physician or with their specialist. Conflict isn't necessarily a bad thing. Conversation certainly isn't a bad thing, but it needs to be done in the right way. So if you're a patient and your doctor is telling you something that you may not agree with or that you just want some more information on to help you understand fully because it may conflict with the information you walked into that appointment with, what are some great ways to enter into that conversation without making it sound to your physician like, well, you're a quack and I don't know what you're talking about. How do you enter into that conversation where you're not necessarily challenging, but you need more information as a patient? How do you enter into that discussion? Um, I would definitely recommend that one is honesty. I think a patient should be honest and had developed that trust with the, with the practitioner that uh, these are my concerns. I think the most challenging part is when you start to make conclusions based on your Dr. Google search that automatically I know I have this and I'm convinced that I've got it. I think in many cases that I have seen that patients come in with a specific type of, this is what I thought I had, uh, ends up being something quite different. And uh, keeping that open mind, because then you develop what we call in the provider world, diagnosis fixation. Uh, Diagnosis fixation is where you just say, this is it, and I'm going to continue forward with that, and I'm not going to pay attention to the other possibilities on the differential diagnosis. And it actually makes you go down the wrong road, and uh, you end up sometimes even be very costly and both from a monetary standpoint and also from a health standpoint. Katie, you're nodding your head right there. Yeah, I just, I agree absolutely with, um, it's very helpful when patients have an idea in their head and they've done some research and they 
they have some concerns and some suspicions to kind of help us out because the patient knows their body best and they know their history best. But I think we can help with our our education and background to kind of direct that in, in the best way we know possible. So if a patient does have questions, what's the best way for the patient to present those questions to you without feeling like they might come off saying, okay, you don't know what you're talking about. They just want more information. What's the best way to enter into that dialogue? Well, a lot of our patients already do this. They bring a notebook with them. They've written down some questions. I think that's great to come to your doctor or whoever you're seeing that day with a list of questions. That really gets the conversation started and can often direct us in the right way. And then to bring whatever web search or information that you found with you, print it out if you can, and we can look at it together and we can kind of evaluate the legitimacy of the website that you've seen. And then sometimes I will Google things with patients in the room and we'll look at it together. That's a great idea. Yeah. Dr. Sherman, Katie Bates, great talking to you. You gave us some great things to think about. Anything you'd like to add, anything that we missed? Uh, You know, just another example, I touched a little bit on perceived uh, issues with statins based on uh, media coverage. There were some newer guidelines that came out recently about aspirin uh, in the primary prevention of coronary disease. And it was pretty, um, pretty practice changing for a lot of people, basically not recommending aspirin uh, in the primary prevention of coronary disease. So a lot of patients came into our clinic saying they either stopped their aspirin or they didn't think that they needed aspirin any longer. The problem with that is that most of our patients have coronary artery disease. So uh, cholesterol buildup in the arteries, they have a history of heart attacks, and they definitely should be on an aspirin. And so the media doesn't always do a good job of delineating those types of um, gray areas for patients. And so a lot of patients could potentially have had a bad outcome um, if they um, had not come and asked us that question. So if you see a media report that seems like it paints with a broad brush, go to your clinician and go to your provider and ask them if that applies to you or whether you're the exception that disproves the rule, correct? Yeah, definitely. Dr. Sherman, Katie Bates, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for giving us this important information. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this conversation is over, but more is on the way. So like us, subscribe, and visit us at confluencehealth.org. I'm Clint Strand for Confluence Health, wishing you the best of health.